Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. You guys can be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Horizon West Church, and thank you for being uh, here with us this morning. Um, man, back to school has happened, right? How many of you sent a student back to school this week? <laughs> you're, you're like you're wanting to celebrate, but you're not sure you're allowed to. You can celebrate that, I promise you. Um, man, what a privilege to be around some great schools, and uh, we hope that that uh, send-off was good for you. And some of you are beyond those years, and you're going... Yep, been there, done that, and that's, that's over. So that's great too. Uh, but it was, uh, f- for my home, it was probably much like your home, a lot of different emotions like, oh, this is great, this is sad, this is busy, this is crazy. I got to make lunch every day at seven in the morning rather than at noon, you know, all that kind of stuff. But here we are. Um, and before we get into the, the substance of the day, I want to give you an update. Um, those of you that have been attending Horizon West Church or if you were even here last weekend, you know, last Sunday was a special Sunday for us. We, t- we called it Her- uh, For Horizon West Sunday. And part of the reason for that is it was a giving response um, to enable our church to secure 12 acres of property on Schofield Road. And so I want to give you the update on that. Um, we have a big goal and we're in collaboration with our John Young campus and other campuses of First Orlando. So we took a giant step forward towards securing that property. I want to give the update of what came in just from our campus, from Horizon West Church. That number is $1,612,671. So you can celebrate that. Praise God for the outpouring outpouring of generosity. And um, if you missed that moment and you go, hey, we'd still like to be a part of that. Um, A, every time you give to Horizon West Church, it helps us to advance uh, what God has called us to do here. But B, if you want to talk to me about how to participate more specifically in that, come find me after the service and uh, we will include you on that. Hey, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had a movie that you looked forward to seeing only to have the ending spoiled for you before you got to the theater? Let me see the hands. Come on, I know there's more of you than that, right? Or maybe it was a sporting event. You're like, I'm, I'm intentionally not checking the ESPN app because I want to watch the game that I recorded. I wanna... Well, you understand how that works. I was probably 17 years old the first time I had a significant uh, storyline spoiled for me. My older brother had gone to the movie theater to see a movie that had recently come out, a suspense kind of thriller movie. And uh, I was anticipating watching, we didn't watch a lot of those kind of movies, but the trailer was phenomenal, a brand new director that was getting a lot of uh, kudos. And so um, my brother comes home and he says, the movie was great. And he tells me just a few details. And then he goes, here's the crazy thing. The guy was dead the whole time. (laughs) And you know exactly what movie I'm talking about, right? Sixth Sense. So I watched, and by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, I don't feel bad spoiling it because it's like 23 years old, but (laughs) I watched the entire movie of Sixth Sense with the understanding that the, the guy was actually one of the dead people that the kid was seeing. So it took something of the joy out of watching the movie. Still a phenomenal movie, but nonetheless, the ending was spoiled for me. And what I want to tell you is what is fun and exhilarating for two hours watching a movie or a 42-minute episode is not fun when it comes to our day-to-day life. Living without knowing how it ends 
is not fun. It, it induces anxiety, stress, sometimes panic. How does this all play out? There's a reason people don't like to talk about the end of their own lives, much less the end of human history. But actually, that's what we're going to spend the next several weeks doing. Y'all up for that? I'll just assume you are and keep going because we ain't changing. We're calling this series Living with the End in Mind. Uh, My choice for the series was it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. But I got overruled on that and so that's not what we're calling it. Living with the End in Mind. What we're going to do is we're going to unpack some of the key themes and concepts that come from the Bible that talk about the culmination of human history that many of us refer to as the end times. Now today what I'm going to do is give you some disclaimers and some reasons we're doing this. We're going to give a big introduction. Most of the substance of that end times conversation will begin next week. But before we do that, I want to lay the ground rules. And first I would say this. When it comes to end times, and if you've got some Bible knowledge, think rapture, tribulation, final judgment, these kind of things. We're not going to explore everything in great detail. But when it comes to end times theology, I have found that most people err on one of two extremes. On one side, there are some people who become absolutely obsessed with studying about these things. Um, These are the people that have like maps on their wall and they have charts and timelines. And every time there's a new election, they erase somebody's name and put a new name in. They want to get everything perfectly figured out. And here's what this country means. And this is, and they go boom all the way in. These are the people about whom we might say they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, right? And so they spend all their time consumed with what's going to happen one day in some distant future. In fact, when I was a child, we didn't know the family well, but it was a family in my hometown of Sebring, Florida. And the guy was a dentist. And so he and his family were, you know, they were, they were made good means, they had all that kind of thing. They were involved in the church. And this individual became convinced that Christ was coming back in 1988. And so they sold their practice, sold their home, and moved to some mountain and became like survivalists. Now, you may or may not know that in the mid-80s, a man wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. And he sold over a million copies. And people were going, they were so sure and certain that they had figured out the year, not necessarily the date, that people's entire lives were impacted by that. Did you know that the next year, the man wrote a pamphlet called uh, uh, 89 Reasons Christ May Return in 1989. So he was just, you know, trying to to move money. But that's one danger. This was what I would say was the, the danger that the 20th century church fell into prophecy conferences and, and guys running the circuit and, and, and Russia and Iran and they, they just had it all figured out. And so what happened for guys my age and maybe some of you, we swung way over here. We're like, these people are crazy <laughs> and they've been wrong one too many times and we're just going to do life and one day it's all going to end, right? And, and so about a person like that, we might say that they have their head in the sand they're like, I'm not even going to worry about it. I know, I know God wins in the end. I'm just going to worry about the day-to-day. I'm just going to love people, you know. And certainly the balance of our time and attention should go to the living day-to-day in a Christ-like way that changes the world around us. But I want to make a couple cases that actually looking at the end times is an important thing for us to do. 
Before I do that, let me give you some of the reasons people avoid it. Number one, people will avoid end times theology because it can be confusing. Can I get an amen? <laughs> the beast with seven heads and ten horns and, and was nearly slain but came back to life and had false miracles and teamed up with the false prophet. And you're going, what in the world? This is, this is crazy stuff that I can't get my head around. And what we tend to do like I used to do with mathematics, when you don't understand a concept, you just avoid it. <laughs> right? Like, it, like if I can't fit it into, that doesn't make sense to me, and so I just shut it down. It's much easier just to go, well, Jesus said do to others what, you know, you would have them do to you, so that's how I live. Well, that's good, but that's not the whole of it. So it can be uh, confusing. It can also be unsettling. My very first memory, and you know how you have like, snatches of memories. Like I remember, this is very strange. I didn't plan on sharing this. My family used to live in Indiana and I have this weird memory of going outside with Superman slippers on my hands, probably because my parents didn't have slippers for me. I was the fourth kid and they were just like, uh, or, or rather mittens. They put slippers on my hands instead of mittens. And one of my Superman mit, uh, slippers fell off my hand and my hand got really, really cold. That doesn't have anything to do with my message, but that was my first memory. My second memory was being in a room not too unlike this, and a college theater team was doing a dramatization of the book of Revelation. I was four years old, and they used strobe lights and loud music, and obviously this is, you know, theater, so they're like way dramatic, and I learned about concepts like tribulation and judgment and hell. I'd never known those things before. I can remember the actors screaming at one point for the rocks to fall on them. I told you I was four years old, right? I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that point. I had older siblings. Our family went to this thing. And I am not joking when I tell you that for not months, but years after that, I had trouble sleeping at night. I was, I was traumatized at four years old because at night when it got dark and quiet, I started thinking about angels and demons and hell and judgment and concepts that are way, way too big for a four-year-old. And so if I can be perfectly transparent, I'm now 40 years old and there's still some trepidation when I opened a revelation because I remember how unsettling all of those concepts were. Third reason we might avoid is that it can feel just simply unrelatable. Um, if I told you, hey, this week we're starting our, our series on financial management or how to have a thriving marriage or how to raise successful parents, we'd all go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right up my alley or, or how, to, how to be successful at work or whatever it might be. When I say we're going to talk about the end times for a few weeks, it's like, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense for where I'm at, right? Like that's not really relatable to my situation. But here are the three reasons I think for engaging in the conversation. Number one, and we'll go through these quickly. End times has great significance biblically. And what I mean by that, I heard um, uh, somebody say this week that there are 150 chapters of the Bible that touch on the end times, me meaning the time of human history that's right before Christ's return, right before everything is, is made right. So 150 chapters. In fact, in the New Testament, every New Testament writer talks about the end times, and 26 of the 27 books address the end times in at least a verse or two. The only book that I'm aware of that doesn't is Philemon because that's written with a whole different um, uh, intention. But 26 out of 20, 27, and every New Testament writer touches on it. It has great significance to the whole biblical narrative. Secondly, it's the only era of biblical history that we may directly participate in. 
mean, think about that. It, it would be unbelievable to have been standing at the edge of the Red Sea when God, through Moses, parted the waters and they walked through, right? And you'd be like, wow, that's spectacular. Or, or maybe to be on the battlefield when, when that young kid, David, you know, swings his slingshot and, and drills the giant in the, in the forehead and kills him. You're like, man, that would be cool to see. Or, or the early church. Think about the Acts church where the gospel's going into brand new territories and, and miracles are happening and people are being saved and the gospel is advancing. And you're like, man, those would be spectacular. But, but here's the thing. The only era that we might, might, I'm not saying we will, might participate in is the end of human history. Those events are all past. And the end of human history or the end times will be far more spectacular, far bigger than anything we read in the pages of the scriptures, if I understand it right. So, so it's actually something, it's not unrelatable, this is something we may actually need to be prepared to experience firsthand. And then third, we should study it because it will impact the way we live here and now. I shared a negative example of that. Somebody became convinced they had it all figured out and they sold their practice and sold their home and uprooted their family. But there's a positive element to that. If I understand how the end plays out, if I understand where it's all going, it can impact the decisions that I make here and now. Let me give you an example of that. My family recently did a two-week, or the better part of two weeks, road trip uh, up the Northeast. And we knew that we wanted to end with three nights in New York City. Some of you are saying, why did you want to spend three nights in New York City? But that's not the point. We did. And that was the end of our trip. That was the, the, the final destination. And so we routed ourselves from that end point, started at the beginning, we need to be at this state on this night, we're going to stay two nights here, we're going to go see these friends here, then we're meeting up with your sister. And we're, so we're organizing all of that, we're planning our money, we even changed the first three days, we couldn't do Bar Harbor, this, it would be too rushed, we got to get to New York City. So, so everything changed around understanding where we would end up. And I want to submit to you that understanding how human history plays out should impact the decisions you make here and now. That's why we're calling this living with the end in mind. We're not calling it knowing everything there is to know about end times theology so you can write a book. Right? We're, we're not talking it, you know, we're not calling it uh, end times theology so you can debate your friends. That's not what this is going to be about. What I hope and what I pray is that at the end of this series and all the way along the way, you're getting tools and resources to go, whew, I need to live in a different way. Just like Ryan said, God, I want to be changed by you. I know what's coming to some degree. I know where this is going and it's going to impact the decisions I make here and now. So reasons we might be tempted to avoid studying it, but I think better reasons why we should engage in the study of end times theology. Uh, today, I, as I told you, this is going to be kind of our introduction. I want to give you redemptive history in three movements um, the first is found in the Old Testament, or what's sometimes called the First Covenant. The second is found in the New Testament, or Second Covenant. And then the third, also contained in the New Testament, but I believe it represents kind of a, a culmination point such that it should be called a third movement. That's end times theology, and that's where we'll spend the next several weeks. So, redemptive history and three movements. Here's the first, and we will not uh, take a lot of time on each of these. But number one, the first movement in redemptive history is a movement from garden to grave. Let me explain what I mean by that. You may know that when God created the first human beings, he put them in a garden that was called Eden. Correct, right. 
And God placed them in that garden. And the garden, though it was, I believe, a physical and real place, is also metaphorically a place of human thriving. It's the place that God created for people to flourish. When you think garden, you're thinking life and fruit and goodness and brightness, right? Like God says, hey, I'm going to place my people in this garden. And he has a word for it. He says it is good, right? And then he tells the, the man and the woman, he says, cultivate this earth that I've put you on. I, I actually, I want to expand your view of the Garden of Eden because while that Eden was probably a, spe- a specific place, it's not like everything God made around it wasn't good. <laughs> right? Can I, can I expand our vision of that garden? Everything that God made in the six days of creation was good. In fact, humanity, he said, is very good. Which means that that garden may have included, and certainly it, as part of God's creation, could include waterfalls and rainbows and mountains and canyons and valleys and all the most beautiful things in the world that you've ever laid eyes on and more is included in what God intended for humans to experience. This is why when you go on vacation, you go to beautiful places, right? Typically, you, you go to places that are, that are beautiful, that are flourishing. There's something that happens in our soul I'm told, when we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Had some folks go this summer, some friends. That there's something that happens in our soul when we wake up in the mountains and the sun is rising just above them. We go, wow, why? Because we were created for God's good kingdom and garden living. There was only one thing that the man and the woman were not to do. Uh, Listen to how it's described in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now you probably know the rest of the story. They did the one thing they weren't supposed to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment they did, while they didn't fall over dead in the moment, death immediately entered the world. For the first time, their bodies began to deteriorate. For the first time, fruit began to rot on the trees. For for the first time, leaves began to die on the branch. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is this increase, this expansive increase of the reign of sin over humanity such that at one point, God says, I'm going to just start it all over. It sends a flood, remember? Restarts the earth. And what happens? they fall right back into a cycle of sin, rebellion, drifting from God. And so he sets aside a specific nation, the nation of Israel, the the children of Abraham. That's going to be my people. And what do the Israelites do? They fall into that same cycle of sin and rebellion, drifting from God. So he gives them the law. These These are in writings on stone. This is what you are to do and to not do. And they drift right back into the cycle of sin, rebellion, and drifting from God. And this goes on and on. The prophets and the kings and everybody's, you know, drifting away from the garden reality they were created for into the grave reality of sin and self. See, it's a, it's a metaphor, I think, to some degree. that the, the grave is not just that they were physically dying, but that everything in their world began to die and decay. Relationships broke. In fact, Adam and Eve's own son, Cain, killed his brother, right, out of envy and jealousy. So, so this grave living replaced the garden lifestyle that God intended for us. And I want to be really clear about something. What that first covenant does, or what the Old Testament does, 
is not to establish the peculiarity of the Israelite people or the Jewish people, but the pattern for all people. In other words, you can't sit there and go, man, why did those Israelites keep sinning against God? Why did they keep making idols? Because I would guess that if you looked at your own life as I do mine, I find the same pattern at work. There is something in the human heart that naturally pulls it away from the good kingdom God created for us to live in. Romans 3.23 says it this way, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The good news is that God would not give up on his creation. And so whereas the first movement in redemptive history is people moving from uh, uh, garden to grave, that's old covenant, the second movement is a reverse. It's a movement from grave to garden. In fact, the first words of the New Testament say this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what the New Testament begins to establish is that where every other prophet, priest, warrior, and king failed to restore God's good kingdom, Jesus would finally succeed. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 said it this way, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that's a lot of words, but what Paul is basically saying is the human institutions that were raised up, prophets, law, these things failed. They they couldn't bring us back to God. They couldn't invite us back into the garden of God's good creation. Only Jesus could do that. And so Jesus comes to the earth in roughly uh, 6 BC, probably as a baby, grows up to be a man, becomes a teacher, a prophet, you know the story, and he begins to restore God's good kingdom to earth. In fact, when the disciples one time asked him, they said, Jesus, how should we pray? Interesting, they did not ask him how to raise the dead or heal the sick or do any of those things. They said, how should we pray? He said, pray like this, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will come be done. So Jesus devotes his earthly life to restoring the kingdom of God to earth, to seeing God's will done here and now. And he does this in a variety of ways. He does it by bringing nature under his control, calming storms and feeding 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves. He does it by restoring wholeness to people. The blind are now seeing, the lame are now walking, lepers are, lepers are cleansed. And he does it by dethroning the powers of darkness. We know that Jesus confronted on two levels, both physical, like human institutions of evil, Pharisees, Sadducees, Romans, who, who, are, who are using their power in unjust ways, and Jesus would just call them out. He also did that in the spiritual realm. He, he cast demons out of people who had been bound by them, and with a word, he could call them to life. And so Jesus sets about restoring God's kingdom, and ultimately, he does this by being crucified And then by being raised to life on the third day. Now this is so counter to the way that we think, right? Because we're thinking if the trajectory is uh, grave to garden, if, if we're moving away from the grave, then why is Jesus going into the grave? And here's why. Jesus goes into the grave to defeat death. And as Jesus walks out of the grave, he invites us to follow him out of our own graves into garden 
life, life of nourishing and flourishing as we were intended to live. So first, garden to grave, and then through Jesus, grave back to garden. For me, this happened at the age of 15. There were points along the way, prayers and camps and those kind of things, but I vividly remember that at age 15, God woke me up spiritually. He brought me to life spiritually. And I began at that time to walk out of the grave of sin and selfishness and addiction. And look, things don't change overnight, do they? We begin a process. And one time Jesus raises a guy and says, hey, and by the way, take off his grave clothes. We're still unraveling the grave clothes to some degree. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, you've walked out of your grave and you're on your way to human flourishing and life as God intended it to be. What we have in the meantime is a conflict, a juxtaposition, and here it is. We are already made alive, and we are not yet all that God intends us to be. This is what some theologians call already but not yet theology. It works like this. Through Jesus, God's good kingdom is already restored in the souls of those who receive him as Savior and Lord. But we live in a world that is not yet fully restored under the reign of God. Picture it in this way. You can renovate your home and make it all that you want it to be, but if you live in a neighborhood that's just terrible, you're still going to be dealing with the problems of, of that, right? Like, you're still going to be dealing with the surroundings of graffiti and violence. All this. You can do what you do in your home, but your surroundings are still what they are. This is how it is to be a Christian in the world. God is renovating us on the inside. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. He's teaching us to live the kingdom ethics of kindness and goodness and forgiveness and all the things Jesus modeled for us. But we live that already kingdom internally in a world that is not yet what it should be. That's why this morning, in conversation with people, did you hear about this young woman that died this week and her dad and I'm there and we're grieving and Another one, man, our, our granddaughters are going through some things and we're, I'm just, and, and then I'm, I've got in my own life, right? Like I, I'm dealing with, so we're all dealing with that. The kingdom's coming to our hearts if we put our trust in Jesus, but the kingdom has not yet come to our world in the way that God intends it. And so we need one third and final movement of redemptive history. So first from the garden, we moved into the grave of death. Then from the grave, Jesus invites us to life back to the garden of his kingdom and then third, we have the final restoration. This is what the end times deals with, the final restoration of the earth. So whereas most of the New Testament is aimed at living in that already but not yet reality, how do I live as a husband, a dad? How do I live as a, a mother, a wife, a child, a student, a worker, just a person, a citizen? And that's what the New Testament's aimed at. But there are passages in at least one whole book that move us beyond our day-to-day and show us what's coming. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 22 and verses 1 through 5. Notice if you hear anything in the imagery that stands out to you. Revelation 22 at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. They will not need light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign. Saved people, followers of Jesus, will reign with him forever and ever. Now what strikes me in this passage, and you might have seen it as well, is that it is filled with garden imagery. Did you catch that? We got rivers. We got trees producing fruit. We got leaves that bring healing. We've got brightness and lightness. It's like God's saying, this, what I intended in Genesis 1 and 2, that, that was taken in Genesis 3, this will ultimately be restored so that when you come to the end of your own life, or we as a generation come to the end of human history, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus get to return in every sense back to the garden. By the way, I don't even think it's just a restoration of what was. I think God's been spending the last six millennia or so doing a whole new thing. And the beauty of what was and certainly the beauty of what is pale in comparison in what God has in store for us. One writer said it this way, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. That's, that's where we're headed. But in the meantime, we live between here and there. So living with the end in mind is going to show us over the next six or seven weeks some of the big events that are going to take place between this day that we live in and the day that Christ finally brings final restoration to humanity. Okay, and here's a spoiler alert. It's going to get really intense here. <laughs> okay, like it's going to get really, really intense here. And I don't know if we are the generation that's going to go through those end times, but I can tell you we're the generation that's here for this time. And it is imperative that we live faithfully to the biblical witnesses, that, that, that we walk in light of what is coming and hold out the gospel to those around us. So very important. I want to close in this way. We've been spending a lot of time this morning and we will in the coming weeks talking about really, really big, big ideas. And like human history and redemption and eternity and judgment and these kind of things. They're all important. But the truth is, some of you walk in this morning and you're in your own turmoil. And you don't, you don't need there to be an antichrist or, 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 or tribulation. Like you're, you're dealing with it right now. You're dealing with struggles and pain and heartache. You're dealing with life in a grave. That could be a grave of hopelessness. It could be a grave of loneliness, a grave of addiction, a grave of materialism, a grave of pride and ego. But the Bible's really clear. The natural state of human beings is dead. Ever since Genesis 3, we're born into a world that is dead and we ourselves are spiritually dead. And scripture says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if we will confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Last week, we got to see eight individuals make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus. If you've done that, here's the really, really good news. You need to have no fear about the end of your life. When we come home from a long trip, oftentimes my children will have fallen asleep. You know what I do? Dads, you know the, the routine, right? You go in, you unbuckle them, you lift the dead weight, throw it on your shoulder, you walk them in, you lay them in their bed, and for that brief second, they kind of wake up and look at you and they go right to their home and to their bed. Do you know what my vision and what I believe is going to happen at the end of our natural lives? Not to say there won't be pain involved, there could be. 
Not to say it's going to be quick, it could be long, it could be disease, it could be whatever. But the moment you die, if you put your trust in Jesus, the arms of the Father wrap you up. He carries you in. He says, you're home now. And you live for the rest of all of eternity in the community of brothers and sisters, in the light of the glory of Jesus, in the life that's nourishing and flourishing with beauty and goodness. And that's what's coming for you. And you don't have to fear the end of human history. We watch these apocalyptic movies and it's crazy. And yes, it's going to get intense. But when you know how it ends and you know who wins and you know where you're going, you can face it with confidence. I know my Redeemer lives. I know the one who holds tomorrow. After the service, we're going to have some team leaders, some deacons and others who are going to be ready to receive you if you need prayer. And it may be that something today just provoked you to go, man, I think I'm maybe in that spiritual grave. I think maybe I need to be brought to life. We'd love to talk you through that. Or maybe you're just walking through something hard in your marriage or, or with your children or whatever it might be. And we'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Those men will come after the closing song in just a moment. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, I thank you that you did not leave us without information. God, you didn't leave us to wonder what comes next. And God, we don't know all the details. We don't know all the timelines. We don't know the names and faces. But we do know this, that God, the darker it gets here on this earth, the closer we get to the day where redemption is final, the day where you call us home, the day where you restore the world to your original design. And God, we say like the first uh, Christians did, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And God, before the restoration of humanity, we pray for the restoration of every individual, man, woman, and child on this earth. God, we want to see people saved. We want to see people walking in victory. And in a hard world that's going to throw terrible things at us, we want people to know that there's one who has overcome the world and his name is Jesus. God, if there's anybody here today who has not yet put their trust in you, let it be today. Let them come to life today, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.